Genre. especially to Colleen Kruger, and welcome to the Protagonist Podcast, where each week we look at a great character in a great story. I'm Joe Dorowski, and this week we're discussing Menelli from Dragon Song. And joining us for the discussion is returning guest John Dorowski. Welcome back, John. Hello. This episode is a special request from Ben Kruger for his mother's birthday. Happy birthday, Colleen. We hope you enjoy our discussion about a book series that we understand is popular with your family. And it's a book series that I had heard of but I had never read anything from. So I was kind of excited to dig into this because if you are someone who hangs out in the fantasy and sci-fi section of a library, you're going to come across the Dragon Riders of Pern <laughs> at some point. Uh, and so I definitely was familiar with this. Um, so anyone who isn't familiar, Dragon Song is a science fantasy novel by Anne McCaffrey. It's part of a very large series of novels set on the world of Pern, where there's an acidic fungus called Thread that periodically falls from the sky, but dragon riders are able to fend off the Thread if they burn it while it's still in the sky. If it touches the land or ground, though, it's very bad for everyone. Uh, and this particular book in the series was published in 1976 and tells the story of Menely, a musically gifted girl growing up in a fishing village who accidentally bonds with a group of fire lizards, which are not the dragons. There's there's dragons and also fire lizards uh, in the mythology of this world. John, were you familiar with the, the Dragon Riders of Pern? Uh, like you, I had just seen it in the library and in bookstores, mm-hmm. but it was also one of those long running series. It was like, i kind of afraid to get into it because I don't know where to start exactly. And yeah, we, we've talked about that with a few different series mm-hmm. that we've um, kind of tackled the first chapters of on this podcast, that there can be an intimidation factor where it, it's both a sign that you know this is quality when you know there's a lot of books in the series, but it also can be intimidating to say, I'm going to commit to The Wheel of Time or Discworld or Brandon Sanderson's Cosmere. I think those are like three examples I can think of off the top of my head where Mm -hmm. we've done a book from those series on the podcast. And because they are beloved and bestsellers and popular and long running, I know they're going to be good, but it it can be kind of like, ooh, where do I start? Uh, Slash, do I have to commit to everything if I'm going to pick this one up? I will also say that since it was so long running, knowing that some of the books were published like 70s 80s i don't always go into that fantasy and science fiction style of writing yeah because um as a genre everything has evolved Mm -hmm. uh within those and um there's some older texts that are like foundational that you kind of unavoidably you've got to be familiar with lord of the rings or chronicles of narnia like as okay these are foundational texts for the fantasy genre. Um, but so much is built on them. that There's been ebbs and flows that the current stuff is, you know, many removes from that original foundation, but sometimes that stuff that's coming in the, in the 50s, 60s, 70s, 80s, uh, it had different styles that don't quite mesh with what's happening now in the, in the 20. Well, not just don't mesh, but you know, sometimes not what I want to read, Mm -hmm. just, just the voice. And so it's an apprehension about entering into that, uh, because I don't know what I'm going to get right off if I'm, going to agree with it or not and uh most of the time i have been satisfied yeah and it's um i will say this this book uh dragon song is the one that we were asked to to talk about uh was very accessible like it gave you Mm -hmm. enough of 
the larger mythology of the world, but it was very focused on um, mentally and her her area of the world while like acknowledging that there's a larger mythology at play. Yes. So some trivia about this series. The Dragon Riders of Pern is a series of novels that began to be published in 1967. In 2003, Anne McCaffrey's son Todd began to write or co-write with Anne additional novels in the series. And at present, there are 25 novels and two short story collections in the Dragon Riders of Pern series. Anne McCaffrey was the first woman author to win a Hugo Award and also the first woman to win a Nebula Award, which are awards for, for science fiction fantasy. Uh, in the novels, humans have left Earth and colonized a planet called Pern, but have largely lost their technology and forgotten their origins from Earth. On Pern, they ride dragons, and there's this threat called the Thread that arrives, which can wipe out organic life that it touches. And that the, the Thread disrupts society and explains why they've lost all that technology in history. I think it have. also said that there's not a lot of metal on Pern. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, that disrupts your technology. And I think in saying that there's like 25 novels, like you get a sense that this is expansive, but the book series covers two and a half millennia on Pern and they may drop in uh, at different points in the history of Pern that have been established by Anne McCaffrey. And at this point, her also her son. Um, And also my understanding in glancing and reading a bit up about the series, some books will like time hop, like time travel becomes a part of uh, something that the dragons are able to help uh, the dragon riders to do. So um, I, I think that's something that's fascinating, but also adds a bit to the intimidation factor that we've already acknowledged. (laughs) So Anne McCaffrey has recommended reading the books in the order they were published, which, as is often the case in Sprawling Fantasy series, is not the chronological order of the stories that are told in the books. Sometimes stories uh, or books will tell the same events from different points of viewpoint, uh, uh, different points of view. Some novels jump around within the timeline. And the one that we're specifically discussing, Dragon Song, is the first of what is called the Harper Hall trilogy. Uh, now, Dragon Song was the third book published in the series. Uh, but my understanding is like there was the first two books of a different trilogy were published. Then the Harper Hall trilogy was published. And then the last book of that first trilogy <laughs> was published uh i mean it's kind of like trying to talk about like star wars order (laughs) things like that it's just like okay you just gotta accept that this world uh the author creators like know their timeline and fans definitely know the timeline i found a very uh thorough wiki fan wiki oh i am (laughs) sure that there is a very thorough online presence about this where you'll find out everything so dragon song is the first book of the harper hall trilogy third book published in series but the 16th book in chronological order for the series Yes, it all makes sense. <laughs> yes. Um, very quickly, Anne McCaffrey mm-hmm. in 2005 was named the 22nd Grandmaster of Science Fiction and Fantasy by the Science Fiction and Fantasy Writers of America, which if you're a Grandmaster, you know it's going to be good writing. Yes. Uh, and we, I mean, we, you had mentioned that sometimes older fantasy series, there can be like a dated tone to some of it. I didn't mm-hmm. have any issue at all uh, getting into no. this one uh really Um, solid writing very accessible world building uh or or uh, again it was almost like accessible acknowledgement of the world that had been built in in the first two books of of the pern series or at least that she had in her head and maybe some of this is going to come out in other books um but also the focus on the on the character was really good yeah it had a very nice prologue that Mm -hmm. gave you all the history you needed to set up this moment yeah uh, any anything else that you want to share about uh, the series before we dive um, into the spoiler? Yes, two thousand six McCaffrey 
well, was inducted into the Science Fiction Hall of Fame. Oh, okay. So uh, besides a legion of fans that seem to have supported a very long-running book series, lots of critical acclaim for McCaffrey and yeah. her writing and this world. Well, before we move on to that summary of this novel, listeners, we want to thank you for downloading this episode and for listening. And we especially want to thank those of you who support us on Patreon. If you would like to support us financially, we invite you to go to patreon.com slash protagonist and support our show with at least a dollar per month. All supporters on Patreon at any level receive access to our special quick casts, which are shorter episodes in which we talk about the media we've been consuming that we are not yet covering as full episodes of the podcast. And we are also giving updates on our fantasy box office. And all patrons who support us with $5 per month or more get to choose a topic for us to discuss. Just a random side note about the fantasy box office. Dominoes are falling left and right about uh, <laughs> movies shifting, being moved to the next year, and movies that were scheduled for next year being brought into this year. It's just chaos. Uh, and so you can listen to a quick ask for a little update on that. <laughs> All right, on to the summary of Dragon Song. Menelie lives in a small, rustic city on the planet of Pern. Do you have a sense of her age? Did it ever say her age specifically? She's like 15. She's a yeah. teenager. Mm-hmm. not like uh kind of mid-teens yeah not like early adolescence which is often where we get our coming of age stories rooted uh you know a little little more adult than that but not an adult in the community at all yeah so mentally lives in a small rustic city on the planet pern uh the cities on the islands are called holds or at least i i know the ones on islands are called holds maybe in other areas too <laughs> but this is what i know from this book uh and her father Yanis, is the sea holder kind of the uh mayor of the town in the holds the harper is a person who plays music and educates the children and has a place of great respect in the community the holds harper uh Petteron, dies and the hold must wait for a replacement. Mentally, is immensely talented at music. And begrudgingly, she's allowed to take the Harper's place while they wait for a new Harper to be sent from, uh, you know, the, the big city, essentially. Like, this is really outlying, <laughs> you know, the sticks. They're waiting for a contact from the big city who's uh, going to, and a new Harper to be sent in. Traditionally, Harpers are men. Yanis, the uh, Mendeley's father and the leader of this hold, is very traditional. <laughs> and he hates letting his daughter take over the position. He's very begrudgingly going to let this happen because they need someone to teach the children, primarily. But he makes it very clear to her that this is temporary. Uh, Petteron, who had been impressed with Mendeley's skills, had sent along a few of her original compositions to his superiors to alert them of her talent. A letter arrives for Petteron, but it comes after he has passed away, and Giannis refuses to look at this letter. Menelie's father discovers that not only has she been playing the traditional songs, she's been composing her own works in secret. And he takes her instruments and beats her with his belt. She is forbidden from playing and sent out to gather plants and herbs. While she's out there, she sees a fire lizard. Dragons are known to be real in this world, but it is believed that fire lizards, are, um, which are essentially kind of like pet-sized dragons, are mythical creatures and not real. But she definitely sees some. Uh, a new harper named Elgian arrives, and he wants to know who composed the songs that Petteron had sent on. And also, he thinks the same person must have composed some new songs that he found uh, with, with the instruments uh, for the harper in the city, in the hold. But Giannis lies and says that it was, was it a founderling? I think was the term. Just, you know, kind of an orphan yeah. uh, who has left the hold. While well, she's going to... It seems like they send also will send children to other holds to get more skills. That they will then bring back. Yeah. 
Um, while she is gutting a fish, Menely cuts her hand. Her mother treats the cut, but tells her that her hand will be crippled for the rest of her life and she'll be unable to play music ever again. Menely, uh, when she's again out gathering herbs, sees the fire lizard and discovers it has a clutch of eggs that are in danger from a rising tide, and she helps to move the eggs to safety, which kind of befriends her to the mother uh, fire lizard. After she is forbidden from even singing with the new Harper, who is in, in town, Menely sneaks out of the hold to go visit the fire lizard and its eggs she gathers food on the way but when she sees thread is falling she realizes that she will not be able to return back to the hold in time to its safety and so she goes to shelter in the cave where she had moved the eggs of the fire lizard while waiting for the th for the thread to pass uh the eggs begin to hatch the young fire lizards try to leave the cave to go look for food um but mentally is convinced they will go die from the thread so she feeds them the food that she had with her and tries to keep them within the cave around the same time uh Giannis forbids anyone um, to go out looking for mentally basically because he thinks it's easier if she's dead <laughs> like, this is not a loving relationship between father and daughter here uh, and so he doesn't even want people to spend any time searching and mentally realizes that she is happier with this family of fire lizards than uh than she ever was at home, so she's not even going to try and go back home. Elgian, though, asks the Dragon Riders to keep an eye out for her. The Dragon Riders ask Elgian to keep an eye out for fire lizards because they've recently been discovered uh, to be real on the southern continent. Elgian becomes friends with Menali's brother, uh, who teaches him how to sail. They sail around looking for fire lizards, but Elgian overhears music on the wind in one area near the cave where Menali is hiding. Menali has bonded with the nine fire lizards that hatch. She sings to them, and they actually sing back to her. Uh, it's a process called imprinting uh, between dragons and dragon riders, and it seems to happen with fire lizards and Menali in this instance. Uh, she can sense that they're hungry, and she goes out to gather more food. While she's out, she realizes threat is falling. She runs as fast as she can to try and get back to the cave, uh, but she's not going to make it. A dragon rider sees her, though, and picks her up and takes her to safety at a hold called Benden Weir. Um, she cut her feet up pretty good while running, and at the hold, they actually take really good care for her and help her to come less and give her medicine and, and bandages. And this is like a whole new world of care and compassion and empathy that she had never known before. She's shown more kindness uh, than at any point in her own home. Elgian was out looking for Menely uh, when the thread fell, and he was also rescued by a dragon rider and taken to Bend and Weir. While he uh, healing, uh, her fire lizards come to her. She's told that her hand wasn't actually crippled and that she should be able to play music again. Her mom had just wanted her to think it was crippled. At this new hold, Menely uh, um, finds another clutch of lizard eggs, which will be distributed to leaders who will try to bond with those fire lizards like Menely has with hers. She also sees a hatching of dragon eggs and watches as people imprint with the new uh, newborn dragons. She meets the master harper, kind of like the head of all harpers, a man named Raminton. Raminton and Elgian put together that Menely was Pederon's apprentice uh, and that they had seen her music. Like when, when Pederon sent the music on, it was Menely's. They finally connect all the dots that Menely is the uh, very talented harper um, that Pederon had alerted them to. Robinton then invites Melanie or Menely to come to Harper Hall and train to become a Harper herself. The end. So, as we said, this is the first of a trilogy. So, um, it feels like this this book is uh, like um, her like find like almost the call to adventure <laughs> stage of the hero's journey, uh, where she's been in this mundane known world is starting to get a hint of the unknown world and is really invited now into the unknown world, and that will be book two. Uh, yeah of the series yeah i can see that 
John, any thoughts about either the character of Menely? And I, I keep wanting to say Melanie because autocorrect <laughs> seemed to <laughs> think Melanie was it, you know, was was what I was trying to say whenever I typed in Menely uh, in, into our script here or uh, the book as a whole. Um, I think it's really interesting with Menely, the mental health aspect, which would not have been a thing when this was written in 76. Yeah, or, or, or at least not or, as discussed or, yeah, not or as widespread a, as discussed, but a prevalent she, theme. She clearly goes through anxiety and the depression and then uh, trauma mm-hmm. or has lingering trauma. Yeah, I, I think we could say, um, you know, amateur armchair psychologist interpretation that some PTSD is happening after she, music is taken from her and the attacks from her father and the cut in her hand. Well, like in the end, when she's at the other hold, uh, she whenever someone asks, "Well, do you want us to let your family know that you're okay? Do you want us to let the other hold know you're okay?" She panics mm-hmm. and is like, "No, do not do that." Yeah, mm-hmm. and so that's obviously some you know tr- lingering trauma she has to deal with. But uh, like uh, in the first act, when she's told, she, you know, you can't play music anymore, you can't sing, uh, you know, that just builds up anxiety in her until. And depression, like she, she yeah. Definitely well, retreats. it turns into depression mm-hmm. uh, when she runs away from home and she wants to be isolated. Yeah, uh, and you know that uh, she when she finds filers, that's something external for her to take care of, and that helps start healing. Mm-hmm. And I don't feel like uh, at the end of this book we have a. Fully healed <laughs> uh, oh, protagonist, oh no. <laughs> you know. No, it, but but finding again, like the sense of empathy uh, mm-hmm. and that is natural at this other hold when it was something that had been so denied her. You can tell this is revolutionary for her, like paradigm, like how she's going to see the world. Yes, is transformed. and and she starts to develop empathy as well because there's another person at that hold who had lost their dragon, mm-hmm. and that person was severely depressed yes uh, non-functional yeah and mm-hmm. um she get she's able to bond with a, a new dragon and uh though mentally has no part in it she sees that story and is able to empathize with it and say yes i understand what you're going through and if she had if mentally had been a, play, a better place herself she might have been able to help earlier mm-hmm. yeah i like that connection of um you know what what she kind of witnesses. We're not given a whole lot of depth uh, into that. And it, it was to a point where, um, because I read that, um, you know, some stories are given to us from different points of view. I wonder if that's a story that exists in another, in another novel, uh, the dragon writer that lost her dragon. Right. Um, mm-hmm. I'm, I'm going to assume that that's the case <laughs> with that. Um, but as you said, um, part of, you know, the going to the new hold and getting this revolutionary experience is, you know, understand the world she came from and that really, how that really affected her. Mm-hmm. Cause, um, as you said, your parents aren't, aren't very loving, but this was also not a societal situation where you have the traditional family structure. Yeah. Um, it was very communal, right? The, uh, very communal. And it seems like at some point all the girls go to live in one section, all the boys to another. It didn't say what age I believe mm-hmm. they make that move. But at some point it's like you go, live with the, all the girls and yes, you know who your parents are. You can still interact with them, but it, they're not there to be, to parent you. Yeah. And same with like the sibling, like it's, uh, he has a fondness, uh, when he's talking about his sister, but it doesn't feel like, 
uh, you know, a tight siblings who shared a room yeah, growing up or anything like they that. They were they were separated. They were in <laughs> yeah. different parts of the city. Uh-huh. Um, but even then, you know, her her parents are un- not uncaring, but um, they care very much about following the rules and having her fit in that way. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's very much a uh, again with like the the idea of community. It's like um, don't follow your individual hopes and dreams. Fit into this role for the community, <laughs> you know. Yeah, and that's really important because like this type of community is not quite subsistence level, but it's not much above subsistence living. And they they're facing everyone... an apocalypse regularly. Yeah, <laughs> you know? it's like, like it... every two every two hundred years, the threat attacks come. And, uh, you know, it just is a huge upheaval for your society. Mm-hmm. And so, like, mentally might have some memories. So it's, I think they said that it's been about seven years since the threat started coming this time. So mentally might have some memories from before that, but not a lot. But her parents would know what it was like before. Yeah, and uh, and know how dangerous this new world is. Yeah. And, and so uh, there's uh, like a hunker down and survive mentality is is part of that. We can see so many uh, protagonists who are like coming from very problematic and abusive relationships between parental figures and child, you know, whether it's the Dursleys with Harry Potter or, uh, you know, and a number of Roald Dahl figures, Matilda, <laughs> you know, and, and her <laughs> parents. Um, and, oh, I had another one, but it's gone. But I mean, this is a trope that we see. I mean, the, the series of unfortunate events, you know, and, and at times it can be treated in almost like a, like a hyper-realistic or surrealistic way where like there's a, a, a thread of comedy that, that is present. Well, it's, I, like, it's so far beyond the pale mm-hmm. that it's uh, a parody. Yes. Yeah. I, I, I like that. It's almost parodic how uh, poor the relationship is. And this was an instance of that kind of relationship being given to us as a starting point for a character. And there's none of that surreality about it. It is just sad and harsh. And, mm-hmm. uh, and there's no chuckling at the absurdity of the Dursleys or anything like that. Yeah. And I, I think the, uh, for me, the scene where father beats her with his belt was very upsetting to me. Mm-hmm. Um, and on the one hand, if that's what the writer was going for, they did a very good job. <laughs> yes. Which on, I think, the, the I other think hand, we were <laughs> supposed to be upset yeah. by that. But on, on the other hand, as a reader, it lessens my enjoyment of the story uh, at the injustice of that. Yeah. It's um, something that we talked about on the podcast when we talked about the, the fifth season uh, and our, our guest was Charlie and she asked, she's like, she's like, this was hard for me as, as someone who doesn't have young children. Cause there's some trauma towards children at the very beginning, mm-hmm. uh, like just horrifying trauma towards children. And she's like, what was it like for you? And I'm like, Oh, I had to do a palate cleanser. Like I had to stop <laughs> and, <laughs> you know, engage with something yeah. else. Uh, and, um yeah that's think, that's how i felt with this is like when that scene happens like okay i gotta walk away from the story for a little bit mm-hmm. and um, i think it's intended to be that traumatic for the reader like we are supposed to be horrified that this is uh our protagonist's life and it's uh again nothing about it is, is sugar-coated or tonally made it uh more palatable for us as readers it is left as harsh and severe and yeah. it's it's interesting, like you said, it, it can lessen the enjoyment and it can force us to kind of step away from the text. And it, it makes me think about like Edgar Allan Poe's um, 
you know, his, his theory of composition where it should all yeah. be about unity of effect, never having the reader leave the story. Like the goal is actually for the reader to be engaged nonstop. Uh, but when you come across something that can be read as that traumatic, I think there needs to be a disengagement uh, or, or it's a very natural reaction for a reader to disengage for a bit from the story. And it's an interesting thing because like Poe would say, well, that's, that's breaking the spell. I think some authors would say, no, that's, that's good writing. That is that emotionally true. You know, that it resonates that deeply with the reader that they, they have to step away. Yeah. Um, and like that scene in particular was traumatic as a reader, but in general, the setting that uh, McCaffrey builds uh, for half circle, I think the hold is called where she grows up. Mm-hmm. Um, they build it as this um, very unimaginative place. And so you have this creative child in a place that's very strict and rule bound and unimaginative. And it's not that um, the parents couldn't find a place for her. It's that they can't comprehend this at all of what is this creativity. I, I don't understand. And that leads to that distance between the parent and the child mm-hmm. of, um, you know, trying to force her into these rules that she can't conform to because of who she is. And, you know, this is an adolescent journey of trying to come to an understanding of who you are, where you fit in the world. And obviously if she had stayed in half circle, she would have been miserable her entire life. Yeah. And it's an interesting um, example. I mean, it's not that there isn't a role for her. There is an obvious role of Harper. It's just that in this, in this particular hold, the idea of a woman Harper is not even something that's conceived of, right? It's it's just so foreign. It doesn't exist. Yeah. It's like they, they don't, they wouldn't have words for that idea. (laughs) Yeah. Um, and, and so we do get that kind of interesting world where as readers, we just want to say like, let her, let her do her thing. Like she's clearly yeah. meant for this. Like she has a calling, uh, but it's not a calling that's conceptualized by the community and by her parents. And part of that is like I said, it's a, almost subsistence community. So everyone has to do their part or, uh, this community might not survive. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I liked that. Uh, so I think it's the chapter after she gets whipped. Uh, the new Harper comes and we get his point of view and he's all about new thinking and his assignment is to change this hold. But with the acknowledgement uh, that it will not be oh, a, a quick change, that it's yeah. to uh, that it, gently yeah, like he, loosen the, the yeah, strictness. Like, this is going to be a lifetime's work for him to mm-hmm. uh, start to change their thinking and get them out of uh, this uh, I think he described it as um, all traditions that have become hardened rules. Yes. I remember that phrase uh, in there, which I, I, I think it says something about us having like done one pass on this book. And that is a phrase that we both kind of like latched mm-hmm. onto. It's that's good writing, <laughs> you know, and, yeah. uh, and it's, it, just... it, it's one of those examples of writing where this is a fantasy world that's so unlike our own, but you get those, like moments of truth that just resonate. It's like, okay, I, I see what the author is getting at right here. Yeah. And, and we can all understand that concept. Mm-hmm. And there's a, you know, there's a story that's told it. I, I have no idea where it comes from. This may be apocryphal at this point, but you know, a, a young girl's watching her mother prepare like a mm-hmm. roast. Yeah. And the mother cuts off the ends of the roast 
before she breaks it, and, you know, Dodge's like, well, why, why do you do that? It's like, I don't, I don't know. That's just how my mother did it. Yeah. And uh, so she goes to talk to the grandmother, and I think in some versions she goes to talk to the great grandmother. Uh, but the what comes out is, well, our, our oven was small, so we had to cut it off, cut off the end so it fit. Yeah. <laughs> and so it's like, there's no reason to cut off the ends now. It's just that's how it was done, and so they assume that's the rule. Yeah, it's, it's a logical fallacy of appeal to tradition, which is not – sometimes that, that logical fallacy, I think, gets misinterpreted as saying tradition is bad, mm-hmm. and that's not the point. The point of the, uh, that logical fallacy or identifying that logical fallacy is to say tradition isn't the reason to keep doing it that way. What is the actual reason to keep doing it that way? Yeah. Uh, and uh, if there – is a valid reason to keep doing it, which for many traditions there are completely valid reasons to keep doing it the same way that it's been done. Then you keep doing it. But to say we're going to keep doing it because we've always done it that way, that's not the actual reason. What yeah, is, you what is the motivation? What is the reason that? for it? Yeah. Mm-hmm. And, and that story of the, you know, the roast uh, and, and the cutting off the ends just because that's how my mom did it and that's how her mom did it. And then you find out, well, we only did that because of the means we had at the time. Uh, that is pointing out you know the absurdity of just doing it the same way forever and i think it's not the overarching theme of this this story but it is a theme that's within this story yeah, uh, particularly well, with lgn and uh when we get the chapters that are from his point of view uh you start to, to feel that a bit more and i think we can um do a little try and read the leaves of what the author's intent was here Mm-hmm. Um, cause you said it was published in 76. Uh, let me go double check the exact year for this. The series started in, uh, 67 and this one is 76. Yeah. Yeah. So, uh, and you have a female writer who's mm-hmm. putting their name on it and not trying to disguise it in any way. Yeah. And, I, I, this is not far from publishing traditions of like, but especially in like fantasy and sci-fi. Of... Well, like, uh, so the first book would have been published, during Star Trek's run mm-hmm. and DC Fontana used her initials because there was an attitude of, Oh, if they see a woman wrote this episode, people will stop watching. Yes. And I mean, when it, I, I, it's around this era that even like uh SE Hinton writing the outsiders, I mean, not fantasy or sci-fi, but just the attitude being, well, no, a woman couldn't write this story. <laughs> so yeah, you've got to use, use so, your initials. Yeah. And so you can definitely sit, you know, well, reading trying to read what the author's intent was and mm-hmm. i could be mistaken here but you definitely have the sense of um well it kind of harps at the beginning of she's not allowed to uh mental mentally not allowed to do things because she's a girl yeah there, there's a man there's that is, a man's role uh and she's yeah, transgressive this, in even and demonstrating talent in that area yeah and so and she that's part of what leads to her depression is this sense of self-worth that gets destroyed because and it's all based on uh not even what she wants to do is just you were born a girl and therefore you are not worth you don't have worth mm-hmm. in these roles yeah and, and that you ha- you have specific roles and even if you're showing yeah. natural apt- ad- uh, aptitude for a different role it's not an option that's going to be presented to you yeah and so this idea of well we we need to change that it might be slow <laughs> but uh we can change this and mentally goes through that process of finding a place where she belongs where uh her self-worth is confirmed and mm-hmm. you know self-worth comes from within but it needs that external validation yeah to, um, to thrive and and i think this is maybe a good point to start digging into mental mentally as a character um a little bit i think it's interesting because 
with her as the protagonist in this very dour, uh, mundane world, um, and a world that we're being told from an outsider, LGN coming in, like is need of transformation. Like it, it feels like you have a lot of setup for the chosen one narrative. That is not the narrative that I think we're getting <laughs> with, yeah. within this. Yeah. Uh, you know, I, I it maybe in a future book, she's going to come back and help to change things, but that's not like the calling that she's seeing is, is to save the world as it is right now. No, she, uh, this is much more about saving herself. Mm-hmm. And, and I, I've, I think, it's really interesting to start thinking about the strengths that she has, but also not necessarily the weaknesses, but where she's being, um, or, or, I mean, almost, I mean, literally she's beaten down, but, uh, you know, we're, we're like, uh, life is blunting her. Right? Yeah, she's you being know, constrained. She's, she's uh-huh. being constrained. Mm-hmm. Um, because she clearly has this musical talent and we see the awakening of her empathy and you, we already touched on how we see that in the new hold, but I think we also see that when we see her saving the uh, the fire dragon or fire lizard's eggs. Yeah. Uh, this this is an early example of her seeing a creature in need, and despite the threat to herself from drowning, from thread potentially falling from the sky, and also before the mother uh, fire lizard realizes that she's helping, uh, it attacks her. Yeah. And yet she still is willing to push forward despite these threats and and save the eggs. And so I think that empathy is something that's definitely more awakened in terms of her human relationships. But I think it's something that that we're being shown is part of her even before that. Yeah. And um, as you said, she's very musical. Um, but at this point, she doesn't understand the full role of what a Harper does for the community. Mm hmm. She's just been trained in the music, but when Elgin comes in, uh, he, from his point of view, talks about how the Harper is meant to be the confidant for the leader. He's supposed mm-hmm. to be the molder of the children and the arbiter of justice. So while she has an understanding of the music, she doesn't understand what the Harper's role is yet. Though she does seem to have a natural aptitude for teaching because uh, he's very yes. impressed with whoever was teaching the children after the old Harper had died and before he got there. Uh, he says that that was carried on really well. And it, it's not something that she really seems to embrace. It's just part of who she is. <laughs> yeah. Uh, there's um, whether it's a, a maternal uh, instinct or a leadership instinct or a teacherly instinct, you know, whatever, whatever it may be. She has something there uh, that that role of the Harper is something that she is demonstrating and i think when we say that she's musically talented there is a distinction that's made in the book of uh those students of the harpers who can learn the beats and you know and and be competent at at carrying the music and those students who can create the music and she's definitely a creator of music yeah Um, so so she has a uh an innate creativity as well yeah so one of the key traits i was going to bring up Mm -hmm. um with her being creative and such though i wonder if she has curiosity she is curious about certain things but she's not really looking to the wider world in this story yeah we, like we're we, aren't we told somewhat that her brother is curious about the wider world um, yeah and it doesn't feel like she wants to explore what is out over the horizon so much as escape 
yeah the you know the hold because it's it's very damaging for her <laughs> like it's it's abusive but, uh to her yeah but like i think she would have been content if she could have found the right sustenance and uh and you know uh protection that she would have been content hanging out in that cave with her her clutch of dragon uh oh, yeah. fire lizards yeah and if she could she survive have been, she like, could survive there, the she would have like driven to go see what's over the next hill what's on the horizon you know the the moana song or anything like that yeah um that that doesn't feel like uh what what's driving her but i mean still she does have like that sense of wonder when she does see the 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 fire lizards yeah so it's like she new, uh the the new hold like she she's, can she's... she can become curious about mm-hmm. something but she doesn't have it seem to have an innate curiosity or and an I, exploring instinct yeah, and i bring this up because that was another thing elgin uh mentions is he wants part of reshaping the holds is he wants them to stop thinking of just their community, but as of Pern as a whole of how they're all connected. Yes, there is within the isolation that the, her, her upbringing has given, you feel that like sense of isolation and um, like we have our roles here. I, I mean, you mentioned that, you know, the people will be sent off to learn some skills and, but then come home, but it's, it does almost always feel uh, just to fulfill our roles here. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> you know, that, it's like you, we need a new, this skill to be learned so that you can do it here. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's like we just need a skill. We don't need more knowledge or understanding. And while, while um, at least like from her father, and again, I've only done the book once, and I, this feels like a series that some people have read many times. Uh, but but the sense I got from the father was like they knew their place within like uh, an interconnective world like they knew they needed the dragon riders and you know they had their role uh but and the dragon riders had their role but there doesn't feel like uh um you know a need to to understand all that just know like we're we're taking care of our place and there's more going on out there and those people will take care of that (laughs) yeah so so part like as she reaches this new hold and starts to branch out maybe she will develop that curiosity uh more of a passion for learning Mm-hmm. about the world but again we're you know we're just at the start of her journey here yeah where the next book is uh you know explicitly set up as her going to a school for for greater education that yeah. would feel like a very um you know you know the, the the next step in her progression that we're we would expect uh to see is you know this full embrace of education and that and you know enlightening and inflaming this this sense of of wonder and curiosity hmm um anything else about her as a character that stood out uh the one thing that sticks out is that when she does get taken to the other hold uh she's at first mistaken it as a boy mm-hmm. because she's tall and thin and tough and, like yeah, her feet and, are, are she was running uh you know yeah, she's and so she seems to have so, a, a physicality that they associate more with boys than with girls yeah yeah like the um the dragon rider who takes her says, oh, have you considered becoming a runner to carry messages? Because she was so fast uh, running yeah. across the rocks, despite the fact that the rocks were chewing up her feet, uh, you know, and slicing her up. Yeah. You know, some, sometimes that survival instinct kicks in when your life yeah. is in threat. <laughs> Maybe I'll <laughs> just run flight, really uh, fast. <laughs> yeah. The, the, the adrenaline can, can mask the pain uh, yes. <laughs> that's happening at a given moment there. Uh, yeah, no, I, I think that is uh, something that's interesting. And again, you you identified that you know, there may be some gender uh, role issues that are being 
uh, explored. Uh, I, both, there might be some gender politics. Well, I, but mean, I, I mean, like like commentary about our world, you know, not just yeah. the gender roles within this fantasy world that's been created. No, you know, the classic I, allegor, uh, allegorical approach to science fiction and fantasy where like we remove it enough that people don't get their hackles raised, but we're talking about what we're seeing in the world around us. <laughs> yeah, I think there there's definitely the gendered element, but it's also uh, that otherness can stand in for any other type of otherness mm-hmm. of race, ethnicity, sexual orientation, religious preference um, that, you know, might make you feel different and not belong in a community. And then you find the community you belong to. Mm -hmm. Um, But also is the journey of adolescence of finding where you belong and who you are. And so in that sense, it's speaking to, it can speak to a lot of different uh, readers and not just, it's not just, Oh, this was, you know, this is a female protagonist it's targeting female readers uh it's like this is a kind of a universal you sorry you could extrapolate it into a universal story mm-hmm. yeah there's a flexibility to the metaphor uh the, mm-hmm. that it can be found to be applicable to a, to a lot of different situations uh because none of us are going to have the specificity of growing up on burn <laughs> in, in a hold as as a thread is falling from the sky and destroying all all organic life that it touches no but in some way at some point we will probably feel like we don't quite fit in in some way. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I, I think that's one thing. I mean, there's been this whole hullabaloo around uh, Pixar's turning red and some reviews saying like, this one is so specific. It's not a universal story anymore. Uh, and whereas they say like Pixar used to tell universal stories about, about the talking toys and the fish <laughs> and uh, the rat that wants to be a gourmet chef. That's your universal story. <laughs> yeah. um, I, I think because there's like an, a human specificity to saying like this is a a uh, young girl going through puberty and uh, some of our allegory is going to be about that a lot of male critics are like well this one's not for me uh but i think there's still then, then the awkwardness of adolescence that <laughs> yeah that that we could we can definitely uh feel, feel a connection to even if we don't know the specificity of going through uh you know, what young women go through uh at, at that age uh i there's let's just say there's been some poor takes out there <laughs> when, when it comes to when it comes to turning red takes that are um rightfully getting getting some pushback um on, uh, on that and uh i i think it, it's applicable to kind of what we're saying about about this this character in this in this novel too and what Anne mccaffrey's doing uh with the the world of pern and specifically with this this harper uh harper hall trilogy i think was the name of these three books yeah uh, anything else about uh the the world though that you want to talk to or themes within the story ideas um, I do want to talk about the world a little bit because, um, Joe, if you've ha- tried your hand at writing fiction, mm-hmm, I've mm-hmm. tried my hand on it. And specifically at a – I did a story with this type of setting of an isolated island and what their environment was like. And this was so much better than what I've written. Well, I mean, she's a Well, in terms of ecosystem. Uh, <laughs> if you're well, going to start comparing no, I, yourself, to maybe don't I, start by comparing yourself to grandmasters of the four. I, 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 that was the, my next point is I wanted to say, um, yes, it is much better, but it also should not uh, say what I'm doing as bad as saying, look, they did it. I could get to that level too. <laughs> mm-hmm. but and, the, and she is very good at it. Yeah. This, this level of ecosystem that she builds of, of this island about the fish, about about the coastline, particularly mm-hmm. of you know what sort of uh, food will you find there that's edible? What sort of plants and uh, 
seafood is and gonna be there. uh like talking about like the uh when when the brother is teaching elgian about about sailing like talking about time of day when you gotta go fishing uh depth of water what tide is going where uh, how that's yeah. gonna affect what fish I mean, uh and, yeah, and the, how good the, those fish are the brother just looks out in the morning it's like no we're not gonna have any rain today we'll be fine uh-huh and you can just have you know sense that you know what how the day is gonna go um uh, that adds so much to the this type of story where you're sending it on a fictional planet mm-hmm. uh you do have to have an ecosystem uh and but you know this is familiar enough that uh, it's obviously based on earth ideas of what these environments are like but it's done so well that yeah. you can feel this place and uh you can Im- imagine it very quickly through mm-hmm. that kind of world building and i think we it was mentioned in that uh prologue a little bit and I, it was something i came across when i was looking up additional information and trivia about the dragon riders of burn series but like she had the science of when the thread comes down like as with explanations as to orbits and uh yeah. you know the, the was it a binary star system i can't remember i've been mixing in a different world yeah i forget but, but it was like, two i forget if it was two or three stars but yeah, yeah there's a reason plan- why you get these long gaps where society almost forgets the thread uh and yeah, it's like every 200 years mm-hmm. but then it's it's very traumatic and a big deal when thread starts to fall from the sky again uh but but as far as like a world where you're gonna be telling stories across hundreds of years that gives you so many fascinating like storytelling opportunities of how much society is built up after the last uh catastrophe uh and how much do they remember about how to survive, how much do they do they kind of think, well, that's in the past. We we've moved we've moved on. Speaking of like cycles of pandemics and things that we see <laughs> in our own days, like how much do we want to like forget what happened a hundred years ago and just say, ah, you know, <laughs> we're that, we, will, that will never happen again. Yeah, exactly. Um, and it just makes a really rich opportunity for this long form storytelling of uh like you can drop in, I think, on on society's at different points. And here we're getting like our already kind of like this very isolated, uh, very rural. I mean, I, I, I think she does. Uh, there's a danger of going into the stereotype of like the back backwards, you know, small town mm-hmm. versus, you know, versus the forward looking big city uh, where they've got, you know, education and, and they've forgotten it out there. Uh, and if there was maybe a criticism, that might be a little bit of, of something that maybe could be levied uh, about this particular story, but it, it does feel like still a fully formed world. And you understand why this small hold out here would be that way during the time of thread. Following. Yeah. And how, but also how that hold functions. Mm-hmm. Um, and she, yeah. She definitely builds a full structure where the, uh, the, I mean, the abuse of the, of the father is not excusable, but but you can see where it's coming from, you know, where his worldview has come from. Yeah. And in no way does that excuse how he treats his daughter. No, <laughs> that's the thing I get is uh, we get his, we can understand where he's coming from, but it's also very clear why this needs to change. Yes. Yeah. This, this is not being presented as a, an acceptable status quo or a, a normalcy that should be preserved, even as that is like his whole life goal seems to be to preserve yeah. this this particular status quo it is being presented to us as problematic and and um not just for um our you know our our protagonist who's going to go on a hero's journey this is problematic for the the culture <laughs> you know yeah. for for everyone that's living within this hold and as you said though you you do have the difference between the two holds and it could be rural versus big city but even in the bigger hold it's not technologically advanced in any way 
Like mm-hmm. they're doing the same activities. Well, I, I, it's that, just a that, different culture. Yes. And I was going to say that that other hold to me didn't feel like like the big like that's not where the Harper Hall yeah. is, like where you go to get educated to become a Harper. Uh, it's you, that's what, still somewhere else. Like this, that one is still an outlying settlement. So I, I think that helps to maybe uh, remove some of that. Uh, you know, what feels like maybe a little stereotypical version yeah, the, of the, small town. The rhythms of life are still the same. Mm-hmm. It's just a different culture that's uh, more empathetic. And and it's more a, it's a warmer culture, whereas the, yeah. you know, the first one is a very cold, hard place. Yeah. And actually, I don't know if they, uh, McCaffrey ever actually used these terms, but I pictured Half Circle as these gray and green, very aquatic colors um, because it's on the ocean. Um, but damp and dark mm-hmm. and the other places, um, these warm tones of brown and you would have lots of fires going. Yeah. And yeah. And, and like, it like, wasn't, and I don't know if she actually said any of those things, mm-hmm. but that was just the impression I got. I mean, you know how muted a color palette, uh, they gave, um, the district and hunger games in the film, mm-hmm. uh, before she goes to the, you know, the capital where they oversaturate everything. Uh, yeah. the, her hold where she's growing up is that very muted gray washed out color, color palette to me. Like that's what I was envisioning the whole time. Yeah. And like you, I'm not sure if that's me carrying in, uh, like the visual rhetoric of storytelling that we've consumed so much of in film and yeah. television and comic books, or is that the word picture that was being painted by McCaffrey and we just kind of picked up on it and envisioned it in our heads as, as we were seeing it. It's probably a mix of both. I, I would guess like I didn't, I haven't studied the pros of this closely enough to, or McCaffrey's writing style closely enough to say how much, you know, what her adjective use looks like or anything like that. I'm, gu- I'm guessing it's a bit of both though. Um. Yeah, and, and just a uh, final thought about that. It, the complexity of the world that she's made that's going to carry across dozens you know, of novels uh, and still be carried out and have a very engaged fan base from what I saw <laughs> as I was looking around, I, I, that just speaks to her, her skills, a, a, you know, a craftsman, uh, a, um, a world builder. And that's one of the things with, with fantasy and, and science fiction that can be so hard where like you have ideas, but how do you present them in ways that are accessible and, and do your ideas like actually interlock in ways that have an internal cohesion to them? It feels like everything is inter- internally consistent from what I'm seeing yeah. so far. I agree. Yeah. So respect to McCaffrey. <laughs> just, <laughs> just want to say that one more time <laughs> in case the title of grandmaster hadn't already done that enough. Well, John, do you have any final thoughts about uh, Dragon Song or the Dragon Riders of Pern series as much as we know it from, from this one novel so far? Um, no, I think we've covered everything I wanted to say. Yeah, um, I think, like we said, it can be kind of like, where do you find a foothold? Uh, this was a really accessible first book. And knowing that there's, you know, a trilogy of books with this character that can follow through where I'm sure we get a, a, an even greater sense. I mean, the next novel is obviously like, the the country girl going to the university <laughs> seems to be what the next book is. We're, we're going to get a better sense of the world. So I think this Harper Hall trilogy would be a really good accessible point if any of our listeners are um, looking to get into this. Um, I also came across many fans have created their own reading lists or reading orders, and McCaffrey has her own recommended reading order of the publication order. Uh, so there, and you can find many copies of the chronological order chronological order so there's lots of ways that you can um go through this this series if this sounds interesting to you and um yeah 
it was i you know i mean this is in the in the 60s and 70s like the the idea or the uh the uh genre label of ya wasn't a publishing thing yet right that's a yeah i, I actually that was a another point I, I had forgotten about um that uh yeah in the 60s and 70s if you went to a bookstore it wouldn't have been separated into all the genres we have today mm-hmm. and the age been, there's a fantasy shelf over there <laughs> you might not have even had that yeah it might have been there's the fiction section mm-hmm. there's the non-fiction section but whereas like now you've got young readers middle grade readers ya new adult <laughs> you know yeah it, it just keeps going and going how much we're gonna um stratify and um fractionalize uh the reading audience uh this felt super accessible for any reader I would say <laughs> at any mm-hmm. level. Like I didn't feel like I was being condescended to or talked down to the way uh, or simplified. Like the story was being simplified for me. Uh, like the way sometimes like with my kids, I read middle grade fiction sometimes. And sometimes it feels overly simplified, <laughs> you know, in a way that that's not appealing. Uh, I had none of that, but also I could definitely tell, you know, my, my kids in you know, older years of elementary school or, or junior high, Hey, go listen to this. It's a really good book. And they would, I think grasp onto it and, and not struggle in any way. So I love it when I find those stories and texts that really are all ages, not just saying like, there's not objectionable content, but it's appealing and, and written at a level that is uh, something that, that all ages are going to enjoy. And I think, I think McCaffrey's at least in this one is building that kind of world. Yeah. All right. Well, thank you, John, for uh, coming on. And one more time, we want to say happy birthday to Colleen. And uh, thank you to Ben for asking that we uh, we cover this particular episode and, and this book. And it's it's a really good series that um, I've kind of always had like on the periphery of my, of my awareness. So I'm very glad that I've, uh, you know, now engaged with the Dragon Riders of Hearn. Uh, in a more concrete way. That is going to wrap up this episode. Thank you, listeners. Uh, for show notes and links to all the other great Dueling Genre shows, you can go to DuelingGenre.com. Also, please subscribe to the Tagless Podcast in your podcast app of choice. And please leave us a review. That really helps us out. We'd like to thank Scott Talk to you who closed our theme music. Thank you again for listening. We'll be back next week to discuss another great character in a great story. So John, that mic didn't get muted, so I'm going <laughs> to... I saw you press the button, but I still heard the cough, so I'm going to just...